HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 5th. This is the 42nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the producer of some of the most impressive culinary events nationwide, and I will introduce him shortly. But first, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to be detail-oriented. You know, dot your I's and cross your T's. Pay attention to the small details while keeping an eye on the big picture. Have a proactive attitude for creating ideas and fixing problems, not only seeking solutions but understanding the causes. It's all in the details, as they say, so take notice of them. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very excited about my guest. It is Randy Fisher, president and founder of CREAM, which stands for Culinary Related Entertainment and Marketing. Taking on the most challenging food-centric events in the business, Randy and his team have gained a reputation as innovators and steadfast professionals. Producing large-scale specialty events with multifaceted marketing platforms, Cream has partnered with the food industry's brightest stars and most skilled chefs throughout the nation. The Cream story starts with an idea and ends with a seamlessly executed culinary event. So, hello, Randy. Are you out there? I'm here, Sherry. How are you? Good to hear your voice and good to be with you today. Ah, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Now, you're calling in from, is it sunny South Florida today? 
Actually, it's, a, it's partially cloudy, South Florida. It's, <laughs> it's atypical at this time of year, but we have a little bit of clouds. But I got to tell you, it is. Uh, it's in the high seventies, low eighties, and that's that's good for me. Yeah, that's good for me too. I, I will be. <laughs> I will be visiting soon. I'll be down for Thanksgiving, so I'm looking forward to it. We look forward to having you. Oh well, thanks. So uh, I wanted to catch you when you were here in New York, but uh, busy schedule. So I'm glad I got you now, and I, I wanted to start out with with how you got into the culinary industry and did you grow up in Miami was I did I was I was born in Miami and and really spent as much time as I possibly could early on in my life around restaurants for some reason I was drawn to it uh I grew up in a house that uh, was definitely food-centric, and I thought at some point in my life that I would be involved with the business, and so that was kind of my summer job scenario. But uh, Miami's always been my home, except for when I've been away for school, and it's and it's a, a great town. I'm happy to be here. We, yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say we... Um, what happened with my story was a long one to get to where I am today. I, I ended up uh, going up to Washington for school, studied finance, then went to law school back here in Miami. And while my friends were clerking, I was working at restaurants and hotels and, and really trying to hone some skills that I thought, like I said before, would be somewhere that I would end up. And um, I come from a, a, a basically a hospitality background. Uh, I was a partner in a hospital, excuse me, a hotel hospitality development firm. And we were developing some really wonderful five-star properties, did a lot of work with the Ritz-Carlton Company, uh, and really kept myself as close to the uh, to the industry as possible, whether it was on the development side or management side or just concepting side. So I knew eventually that I would end up in the space. I just didn't know it was going to be in this in this capacity, but I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, well, it's funny because growing up in Miami myself, I my first jobs were working in restaurants, and I didn't know I was going to get into this industry, too. Um, I ended up in the PR now radio aspect, but it's 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 nice that we've crossed paths at this point in our careers. And so, when when did you decide to to start Cream the company? Well, I was um, early on, very early when when Food Network was just getting started. It was a, a ritual in my house to get into bed with my uh, my kids and all turn on the, the the latest and greatest food network show that was 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 on TV and I noticed that my kids were really digging it um, and and wanting to be a part of that of that subculture so to speak of food entertainment uh, and uh, for many years prior to that I had had a, a long-standing friendship with uh, a gentleman by the name of Lee Schrager who you probably know well Lee came uh, on my show a, a little while ago for his Fried and True book so I do know great. Lee yeah, great, uh, great book, and, and Lee's a great talent. And I and I said to him casually one day, I said, Lee, I love what you're doing on South Beach. I've got to get involved somehow. Uh, and that was in year two of the festival, going into year three. And he was just getting ready to embark upon something that he wanted to call Kids Kitchen or some type of programming geared towards children. I said, Look, Lee, that's that's what I do in my home. As I watch Food Network with my kids, I would love to be involved with it. And he and he basically gave me a break and said, "Look, I know you're busy with what you're doing in the hospitality business, but come out and see if you can help with some creative ideas and and help manage it." And it was really from that about 11, 12 years ago that um, I realized that there was a real need in the industry for 
a production firm to, to, to come on the scene and to really specialize in the culinary side of these live events. Uh, not somebody who did it casually, maybe not somebody who did weddings and bar mitzvahs, but somebody who could really tackle all of the elements of the event. And, you know, your PR tip, which is all about details, this business is really all about details. And coming from the law background and the hospitality background it really was an ideal platform for, for me to launch Cream and to surround myself uh, with some very talented people, and, and that's how we got to where we are today. Yes, well, I, I've said this on my show before. I always get inspired um, by my tips, by my guests, and I thought of that tip because of you, because I think of events and I think of the details involved there are so many details and you have to you have to be detail oriented to do what you do so that tip was for you <laughs> yeah, absolutely and it works and thank you you're we welcome to remind myself and the, the staff uh, all the time about it I mean that's really what it is is you gotta you gotta keep your eye on the big picture but just the the, the amount of minutiae at one end and then just the, the the more important details on the other end um, it's critical to our success and that's we take a very holistic view of how we plan an event, uh, but it's always broken down into the smallest detail. So uh, certainly appropriate to hear that leading into today's uh, talk. Oh, well, good. So your first event was with South Beach Food and Wine and the Kid, the kid event. Is, is that correct? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. Um, that was the first event um, that that I was heavily involved with producing, and then we repeated the event for a number of years. It still continues on. We changed the name a little bit. We're not involved because we're we're a little bit too busy at this point to be involved. But it's in the hands of some very talented people, and they've taken it to some great heights. Um, and we've uh, we've moved on and, and have been lucky taking that um, experience it and developing it into really a platform that's worked uh, nationally for us. Yes, it has. And what? So, what are other events did you take on early on and have continued with, with uh, particularly with the South Beach Food and Wine Festival and NYC Food and Wine? Well, the, ne- the next year we uh, we started an event called Burger Bash, which has really become one of the darlings of uh, the food and wine festival <laughs> world. Uh, always Absolutely. at the very beginning, designed and um, with Rachel Ray in mind and. Rachel wanted to bring, Lee wanted to bring a great, the quintessential burger event to people. And, it, and it's been a highly successful event. I think we're on our, I think Callie and I are planning our 17th burger bash in South Beach this, uh, this February. In fact, we just came from a committee meeting today, and it's hard to, it's hard to believe that we've, we've been around for that long. But um, burger bash is certainly one of them. Uh, another event that we were producing in New York uh, and have continued with now, and actually it's been folded into the New York City Festival as well as the South Beach Festival is an event that Josh Ozersky started many years ago called Metopia. Uh, Callie and I were tapped uh, several years ago to turn that from a private birthday party into a well-attended 2,500 to 4,000 person event, and it's something that uh, we've been doing for a number of years, and we're, we're very happy with what just occurred in New York City. We brought it, um, brought it to Lee's attention, and it was a, a real great closing event for the New York City Wine and Food Festival and it'll debut in South Beach as a Saturday night event. Um, so that's been, a, that's been another one of our favorites. And over the years, we've done, we've done some great stuff with um, uh, Best of the Munchies, which is an Andrew Zimmern event, um, uh, a trucks event, which really featured for a number of years what we've all known as the great movement of, of really wonderful, high-quality food being produced out of trucks. 
I think we've seen that trend kind of uh, go back to bricks and mortar at this point, but it's an event that we really enjoyed working on and we, uh, we did for a number of years. They're all outstanding events. I've been, I don't know, I was trying to think how many burger bashes I've been to. I've probably been to about 10. Uh, it's always the most popular event, in, in my opinion, and it's so well executed. So having come off NYC Food and Wine Festival, which was like two weeks ago-ish, and I know South Beach is coming up in a few months. So how do you, are you planning, when do you start planning for the burger bash? I mean, did you start before NYC Food and Wine? You kind of like have yeah, to be working on them both at the same time? We did. There's, a, there's always a little bit of an overlap between the two festivals, and, and it's, it's the kind of time when we look at each other and the people in the office and say, wait, I can't believe we're actually working on South Beach. We haven't even pulled off New York yet. But um, it works well because what happens is we get our invitations out early. We know our chef roster early on in the game, and so the fact that the two crossover works, works well for us. And, and for us, there's, you know, there's definitely a life cycle each and every year with these, with these events, but I would say that typically we're working six months out. Uh, a lot of the heavy lifting is done in the later months, um, and then, of course, just the chef invites, which go out at the very beginning, and, and getting people situated and uh, getting, a, getting them um, familiar with the event for those that haven't ever done an event, that all takes place in the early months. But we're, we're already well into, um, into uh, the South Beach Festival. We're producing uh, four really wonderful events. Three of them are, are large-scale, which I, I, I define large-scale as anything over 2,500 to 3,000 people. And then we, we <laughs> yeah. do this really wonderful little panache event that um, is called Chicken Coop, uh, which is a great celebration. It's really it's, it's basically the fried and true book that you met with Lee about, uh, coupled with uh, some of the great champagne houses out of France. Uh, in the at the W on South Beach, and it's really become one of our favorite events. And it's one of the only events, frankly, that we ever get to work on where it's an indoor event that has indoor plumbing, electricity, and lighting. Because typically, uh, Cream has been tapped to produce uh, the most challenging, the most difficult events out in the middle of piers and on sand lots in the middle of parks. So we kind of pinch ourselves when Chicken Coop comes around, and, and, and we love producing it. Yes, yeah, so I went to the Chicken Coop. In, for NYC Food and Wine Fest that was at the Boathouse. Uh, I was out of town part of that weekend, which is why I wasn't able to go to all the events you were doing on the pier, but I did go to that one. Did you work on the New York City one, or are you just doing the South Beach one? We're just doing the South okay. Beach one. We, we, uh, we really are kind of locked and loaded on the rooftop of Pier 92 where we produced four events, and it was just impossible to, to be able to pull off anything else in New York at this time. Um, so we'll we'll uh, we'll sit tight with what we have on our plates in New York with that particular festival, and 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 we're lucky to be able to produce a really wonderful chicken coop here in South Beach. Yeah, well, I'm I'm I haven't booked my ticket yet, but I'm I'm planning to come down uh, for South Beach, and I I hope to go to that. And also, I mean, Metopia, I remember it from the days when Josh was doing it as an industry re- related event, a very small like birthday party. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. you've taken it to to such a a high level um it's it's really amazing yeah, it really is it's a, it's a i think it's one of the best curated menu events in the country and uh josh is brilliant at what he does he has wonderful chef relationships he understands meat very well and he understands how to present meat to an audience where there's no duplication of menu items and that he pushes his chefs to 
really put out their best fare and challenges them. And I've always enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's the real deal. Uh, there's no propane allowed. There's no electricity being used. It's all hardwood and charcoal and uh, a bevy of some of the country's most talented chefs uh, putting out some of the greatest beef uh, and, and other meats. And it's, uh, it's, it's not to be missed. It's really something special. Yes, it's, it is. I, I look forward to it. I'm going to have to get my ticket. So, okay, we're going to take a little break here and come back in a second, talk more with Randy. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Randy Fisher of Cream the Company. So, Randy, I want to find out more about these, how you actually make these massive events happen. Because you do do, uh, we're talking about the Burger Bash, and I know there's also, what was it called, La, La Sagra, the pizza event? La Sagra, yeah, La Sagra, sure. And and they're all on on a pier off off the Hudson River in New York City, and they're huge. And there's so, how do you pull it off such a well executed event? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for the compliment. I mean, I, I I think it really goes back to um, I think it goes back to the details. Here's here's our approach to it. I mean, we we like to be involved at the very beginning. Uh, La Sagra was a unique situation because it was an event that we were hired to produce in New York, independent of the New York City Wine and Food Festival, and the timing worked out so that uh, we thought it would be. a Good event to bring to Lee Schrager's attention and to be part of the uh, be part of the festival. And the reason why I mention that is because what typically happens when we start with a new event, it's people that come to us with an idea that really they may be restaurateurs, they may be promoters, they may be sponsors, but they don't truly understand the details and and what it takes in order to be successful on site. And so we. We like to be involved at the very beginning before there's any preconceived notions, and we like to run people through what it really takes to be successful. Uh, and it and it and it takes a lot. You know, we, we've seen people who are tremendous at the music game that fail miserably at the food game, and vice versa, because there are subtleties with live cooking events that you can't really appreciate until you've been involved with it. Uh, and so you have to plan to that. You have to understand that. You have to understand food movement. Uh, you have to be able to understand refrigeration and what it takes to cook food that's cold or that's been uh, that hasn't been prepared yet. That's not. We don't typically do chafing dish events, uh, and we um, we get involved in the nitty gritty very early in the process. Uh, we manage expectations. Uh, 
uh, and we take people through the process by basically going through um, an interview which asks, you know, maybe 250 to 300 questions so that we get, in the end, not only the genesis of the idea that the the visionary has, but also where they want to be at the end when we're all kind of high-fiving at the end of the event. And then we bring all that information back to our team, and we build upon that as our foundation, uh, and we uh, we address every single question and so that when, at the end, when we do our after-event recap, anything that comes up, we've planned to that information. And it's um, it sounds a little laborious, but it really it's actually a very fun and a very creative process. Uh, for example, Metopia on Randall's Island, the concept came up with, with uh, how do we get people to Randall's Island? I mean, how, how does that work and, and what does that look like? And that's where we went out and we investigated ferry boats and what the, what the journey with that ferry boat would be like from Manhattan over to Randall's Island, not just a ferry experience for some people who've never been on the East River, but also what kind of food and drink could we serve to people so that once they land on Randall's Island, that they've already gotten this kind of metopia feel. So we've got music going on the ferry. We've got a great wine sponsor that's teaching people about their wines. We did meat pies from Australia, and lo and behold, you end up in metopia, the world's largest carnivore celebration. So we, we really look at it holistically, and our plans are always based on hospitality, uh, being that we are hospitality uh, background people, and that is managing the guest's experience to the nth degree. Uh, we all know that uh, there's basically four stars on any event uh, venue, and that's going to be the guests, the sponsors, the clients, and the often forgotten the chefs, the ones that really kind of make it all happen uh, with, with their delicious foods and their beverages. So those are the four stars, and if we, can, if we can service those four stars, then as I tell my team all the time, we'll be the fifth star. I mean, we'll, we'll actually have nailed it, and that's kind of our mantra when we, when we go forward with this. I'm teasing, but I'm thinking you need a six star, the publicist, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let me not forget the publicist and the role that the publicist has in all of this, without a doubt. You know, it's, it's interesting. Most of um, most of the communication we have uh, these days is with the the restaurant publicist, and it's and it's been great because I think they understand the messaging and what it's all about. I mean, these events have a they have a mission. There's there's something that has to come out of it for all of the people that are involved, and for the restaurateur who oftentimes is is doing this uh, free of charge without remuneration, uh, and sometimes without a lot of glory. The publicist understands what could possibly be gleaned from that experience and how to best mine those uh, those kernels and that value. And so we we enjoy that. We really uh, we've had a good time with any of the publicists that we've worked with. Well, that's that's good to hear. I think we can be helpful. Um, so I wanted to see with now you have a lot of let's talk a lot about all the different aspects of the services because you have culinary staffing, you do the ticketing. I mean, these are all things you that go into the event as well, right? Correct. I mean, we've, um, again, going, going back to what I said before, we look at it holistically and we say to ourselves, you know, the person that's coming to us that knows nothing about how to produce this event, we have an opportunity to provide all the services. It's a one-stop shop, so to speak. Uh, we can provide all of it, or we can be very narrow in scope and maybe just help with the budgeting process. We've been hired a number of times over the years just to develop a budget, and um, which, by the way, happens to be a very challenging part, and that's where a lot of those that are hung up in the financial side of things really need to have comfort before they go forward. And 
And I have to tell you, in some cases, we've worked on budgets, have been paid for it, and the event hasn't happened based upon our findings. And that's, that's actually good news because um, we hate to see people go through these experiences and not get um, what they want at the end of the day. But we, we are at the very beginning with the conceptualization and all the way to the end with a phrase that was coined recently called the broom game, which is until the broom is sweeping up the last little bit of refuse and there's no carbon footprint at all. So everything in between that, ticketing and venue management and how you get your lighting there and, and rentals and all that kind of stuff, uh, we, we basically are, are a full-service shop uh, only because we enjoy all of it and, um, and have the experience. And we've, we've really surrounded ourselves with some, some real experts in the field that make, make us all look like superstars. What would you say is the most challenging part of of putting together an event, especially an event that's on a beach? Well, let's see. There's, I mean, there's um, there's the personality side that sometimes can be challenging, and that's kind of the wrangling and getting all the personalities to work together because there are all different types of disciplines that come together, and many of them have different cultures. So there's definitely the psychology of an event that we spend a lot of time managing, uh, and then I think the other group of challenges we have are just the, the sheer physical space. I mean, what does it mean to try to prepare a delicious burger, a cheeseburger at that, uh, in the middle of a blowing sandstorm? I mean, how do, you, how do you control that? I mean, people, there's all kinds of crunch in food, and, but that's the last crunch you want is, is a mouthful of sand. And so everything we do based upon where we are and what venue we have is, is, is geared towards how to overcome the venue challenges. And, um, it's it's uh, sand is sand is an interesting enemy for for food and for these events. We've we've managed to kind of overcome a lot of it uh, by the way how we set up our chef stations and how we position the food um, that's coming into the venue as well as the cooking apparatus and all that kind of stuff. But I would say, on a beach setting, it really ends up being sand for us um, as the most challenging thing to overcome. Obviously. Most of our events, 95% of our events are outdoors, so weather is always something that we're keenly aware of and we have to plan for. Some of our clients have um, unlimited budgets, and so rain plans are easy to plan for, and some of our uh, clients don't. And so it's you know basically rain or shine, and you get what you get. We've been, we've been pretty lucky, though. I mean, we've, we've had tornadoes, but we've, uh, we've always pulled off the event in the end. So kind of knock on wood at this point for that. Yeah, I like the unlimited budget line there. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. <laughs> and, and, and and honestly, I have to say, having been to many of the events you produce, you you have it down so well. You really execute. Uh, uh, they're so they're so wonderfully produced. And I've I go to a lot of events, and now when I go to events, and I notice there there aren't enough garbage cans or just the little details that 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 people miss sometimes. And uh, I just give you a lot of credit for, for pulling it off because I don't know. I, the Burger Bash on South Beach, it's like, what, two football fields long? I mean, it's huge. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a blessing and a curse to have that. But you're, uh, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for saying that and thanks for recognizing that. I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's hard. As I'm sure you feel the same way. It's hard to go to an event that you're not producing because you're noticing all these mm-hmm. crazy little things and you get so caught up in it. It's hard to just kind of say, Randy, Callie, just relax and enjoy the event. We find ourselves running around looking for garbage cans to help right, the producer. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, garbage is definitely one of our, one of our biggest you know, focuses as well as lines. You know, we, we hate both of those things, and we, we try to plan for both. Yeah, I don't think you notice it until there's a problem. So that's that's the thing. And 
Now, I have a, a fun question from my guest last week that I asked her to ask you a question. And I had on Helen Rosner. She's a contributor to Severe Magazine's The New Classics Cookbook. And her question is, what's the most amazing thing that's happened to you at a Burger Bash after party? <laughs> um, at a Burger Bash after party? Well, I've got to be honest with you. I, don't, I, I think with the way that we produce, we've never even attended <laughs> a Burger Bash after party because we're still breaking down the venue to flip it for the next, uh, the next event. I mean, truth be told, uh, at our events, I mean, most, if, if not all of our time, is really focused on the producing you know, it's like the, it's like being in the kitchen and people say you must eat all the time. Mm-hmm. It's the same with with producing. I mean, we we spend four during the events themselves four intensive days uh, getting two or three hours of sleep, flipping the flipping the venue so that the next day the guest comes in and it's brand new. I haven't actually ever attended a Burger Bash after party. I do know that last a couple of years ago in South Beach, one of their featured burgers was a Cuban burger. Uh, El Mago de la Frita is a great uh, Frita burger, and they produce their own little after party with all of their family within the Burger Bash uh, venue. But um, certainly with the unofficial Burger Bash after party that nobody knew about, but it's um, certainly the Latins here in South Florida like to go late into the night. Fritas and beer is definitely one of the, the staples of a great after party. Okay. That, that was a, I don't know if, if Helen's going to be so satisfied with that answer being it wasn't that juicy, but it was, I get it. I get it. You're still working at the after party. <laughs> so That's so true. And I mean, it, uh, listen, the chefs disappear at the end of the night. We hope that they have the stamina to go out and to party and enjoy themselves in South Beach. That's one of the great things about the South Beach Festival is that it is also a, a little bit of a party and vacation. But for those of us that are in the trenches and because um, – we don't just do one and done, and the, the fact that we're doing four and five events at a time, we really are, I mean, that is, that's, our, that's our Super Bowl, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, we're, I try to encourage my team, like great athletes, to go home and get that extra hour of sleep if they can, because come 6 o'clock the next morning, we're walking into a clean venue and, and starting all over again. That's kind of sad but true reality. Yeah, There's no I, glamour in that. <laughs> I get it. I call it the spring, spring break for chefs. Exactly. It is, for sure. (laughs) Okay. Very cool. We're going to take a break here and come back. We're going to do my speed round game and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Electric light and back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Randy Fisher, the president and founder of CREAM, which stands for Culinary Related Entertainment and Marketing. Okay, Randy, it is time for my speed round game. Are you ready? I am ready, Sherry. Okay, very cool. <laughs> I'm going to say two, name two things and you just pick your preference. So here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Beer. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? 
tipping. Communal table or chef's counter? Can you repeat that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Commun- <laughs> communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. How about cream, milk, or half and half? Got to go with cream on that, Sherry. <laughs> a little predictable. <laughs> All right, a couple more. South Beach or NYC? South Beach. Cheese plate or dessert? Mm, cheese plate. Well, I already, I was going to do Manhattan. I always do Manhattan or Brooklyn to people. I can do Manhattan or Brooklyn with you too. What do you? Yeah, that's cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I'm going to say Manhattan. All right, Manhattan. Great. You're very good at this game. <laughs> now, let's talk some industry news. There was a big story that broke the other day, how Tavern on the Green has found its new chef, and it is Jeremiah Tower. And the the first of this, this story came out in the New York Times by Florence Fabricant. And for people who don't know, Jeremiah Tower is, is kind of this, uh, he's a legend from uh, uh, back in California. He, he was known as working at Chez Panisse. He had a very famous restaurant in San Francisco called Stars. Um, but he is 71 years old. He was sort of in retirement, and he's kind of just come out of retirement to to help Tavern on the Green uh, get get back in place since they did not have incredible reviews as as they have have launched. So, do you are you familiar with him, Randy? Uh, I'm familiar by um, by his reputation. I, I am, yes. He's, you know, certainly one of the stalwarts, one of the early star chefs that those of us that have been around the industry for a long time uh, are somewhat familiar with. Yeah, I knew of him, and I read he he won a James Beard Outstanding Chef Award in 1996. I'm not that familiar with him. I mean, there was a great article, another article I saw that um, Kim Severson had written in 1999 in the San Francisco Chronicle that I read after this came out all about him and and where he was at. I mean, he, he it seems like he was the first celebrity chef. You know, now right. we've gotten yeah. celebrity chefs. I mean, you work with a lot of celebrity chefs, so it's like ahead of the time. Yeah, I would agree. With, uh, I would agree with that. Listen, there was a time not so long ago where the chef stayed in the kitchen and everybody knew the maitre d's name, and uh, sometimes the owner. I mean, that's obviously kind of been turned uh, to the opposite scenario now. But um, yeah, he was one of those guys who found celebratory status early on, back in the early days. And he's, you know, he certainly has great company from from those days. But uh, it's listen, frankly, I think it's great that he's still in the game and still interested and still inventing and and taking what is got to be regarded as one of the greatest restaurants in the world, certainly greatest restaurant spaces in the world, uh, and taking a swing at it. And I know the guys that hired him feel very confident that they have the right person in place there. I hope I, I hope them, or wish him great success, and I hope it works out well for him. Yeah, I do too. I'm excited to see what changes he makes. And it's, I mean, from what I read, he has a lot of confidence. So I think he's coming in this with a lot of confidence. He's going to change up the menu, and I think, I'm going to go back and see what he's doing. So I think I think it's a good PR plan for you know to bring in uh, at least for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, 
Listen, I mean, it's no secret there uh, he'll be the second chef that's taking over in that new space. Uh, the owners have something to prove, and, uh, and so does the chef. And so I think they're going to be at, the, at the, the height of their game and, and really figure it out. And I, uh, I'm anxious to get back as well. Maybe we'll, uh, I'd love to take you. Maybe we'll dine together and, and check it out together. That would be fun. Oh, I love that idea. Thank you. That sounds awesome. Okay, now another story. This came out yesterday, and it was on CBS this morning that Adam Platt was their guest. And the piece, he was talking about how Americans are addicted to tipping. And Adam Platt is the restaurant reviewer for New York Magazine. And I thought this was particularly interesting, too, because on my speed round game, I always do the the tipping all-inclusive charge uh, question. And everyone except one guest so far has, has gone with tipping. And so I think people feel feel good about tipping um adam was kind of saying that we tip because of obligation guilt and social pressure um so did you did you see this bit or or the article there was also an article in new york magazine on it i did actually yeah i did review it and um i had a chance to kind of think about it a little bit and i think listen i think uh, i think adam made some some really great points and i i agree to him agree with him to a certain extent i think uh i think there's an expectation you know that that 15 percent or 20 percent is going to be an automatic i have to tell you and i may not be popular for saying this i'm not always that guy i mean i i feel that tipping is is something that you earn uh, i've never not tipped something but i do tip more generously when i feel like i've had an exceptional service experience because Frankly, I'm not tipping the chef, um, so it's not so much because the food is delicious. It's just how you feel. Listen, it, it's hospitality. I mean, I, I, I think it would be. Um, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to earn money as as as, as part of my my salary tipping because I think that it's all about the service, and and I think that that's what we do is a, a lot of great service. So I'm. I, I saw the piece, and I was. Um, I was in agreement that we don't have to al- always do it from an obligation standpoint, but it should be an earned part of the bill. I really feel that way. Yeah, and I actually was, I wanted to ask you, because I've noticed when I've been down in Miami or South Beach, that there are restaurants that automatically are putting a gratuity on there. And it's not for parties of six or more, which is more standard in New York. Is that something you've noticed that they do? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a reason for that down here. Miami is this international destination city, and many of the cultures that come here to dine and to visit don't typically tip. I mean, it's not, it's something that in, in where they come from in their countries, it's included in the bill and they've become accustomed to it. So what was happening here, and I know it firsthand for, from some restaurants that I've been involved with financially, and that is that people would walk out without tipping. Not so much that they didn't have a great experience, but that they just assumed that it was included. So at some point they were, you know, adding gratuity not included uh, and, and trying to educate people that way, and, and that wasn't working because if English is not your first language, that's not hitting you over the head. And instead, they just said, look, we have to get our people tipped. If they don't understand it, we're just going to have to add it to, to the bill. And uh, I think I'm, I'm also a person who feels like that has to be so expressly um, uh, clear to the guests so that they don't obviously leave a tip twice. And when it's not, I, I kind of I get angered about it. It's not, it's not a good situation. But I have noticed it more, and I think it's because of the international destination here in Miami. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so another article, and I noticed, and I thought I'd bring it up because it's about Miami, was about how Tobacco Road closed on October 25th. And this article is on Miami.com by Leslie 
I'm saying her name wrong. Robineau, yes. All right, you got it. Thank (laughs) you. And so I know, remember Tobacco Road from from my days growing up in Miami, and this is Miami's oldest bar, 102 years old, and it said that it's going to relocate maybe down the street, and it's located in downtown Miami. So did you go to that after party, the closing of Tobacco Road? (laughs) I didn't, but I did frequent it um, uh, a lot in the past year, knowing that it was closing down. I mean, it really was. It's an institution. Miami doesn't have a lot of institutions because we're a younger city, Mm -hmm. and we're also... We're very caught up, or many of the people in Miami are very caught up in what is the newest, what is the greatest, and a little bit sometimes flash in the pan. And so when you have these great old institutions that fall by the wayside and have to make room for new development, it's a little, it's, a, it's sad and a little disheartening. I mean, we all understand progress and what it means to become an even better city, but I, I only wish that they could preserve that which we all think is historic. And I'll tell you something, we... Um, we did a great job of that with the Deco movement on South Beach. There was one woman who stood up in, amidst all the developers and said, we have an international gem here. We have to protect the Art Deco buildings that are on the beach. She wasn't popular in the 80s. She really was one of the people who developers really detested. And because of her efforts and then many who joined her efforts, we have one of the greatest examples of Art Deco in the world here on South Beach. I wish sometimes some of these institutions like Tobacco Road that developers could understand that they could build around it, incorporate it, include it as part of their plans and really help some of the fabric of what makes Miami such a special place uh, stay alive. I I really wish that was the case. Yes, they are going to relocate it, but when you walk in, it's not going to ever have the same soul that it's had in the past. It never can uh, in many of these institutions. Yeah. Uh, Joe Stone, Joe Stone Crabs, which I think will never go away, is another one of those institutions, which uh, I'm sure you've been to down here, but yes. um, you get the feeling that it's been around for a long time. So I was sad to see Tobacco Road leave. Yes, me too. Okay, great. We're going to take one more break here and come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all on the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Now, this week, I checked out Upland. Here's the rundown. The location, East 26th Street near Park Avenue South. The concept, a brand new Stephen Star restaurant featuring California-inspired cuisine in the bustling heart of New York City. The chef and partner, Justin Smiley, previously of Il Buco Elementary. Why did I go? because Justin proved he was an outstanding chef at El Buco. My experience? I went for dinner on Sunday evening. After I checked with the hostess, I went to take a seat at the bar. And as I was taking off my jacket, a server approached me, and the conversation went like this. Are you waiting for a table to have dinner? She asked. No, I replied. Are you having drinks? No, I said once again. Are you meeting friends? No, one more time. And I explained I was there to dine solo at the bar. She then complimented me on this achievement, like I had run the marathon that day. Really, I was just having dinner by myself at a restaurant bar. Now, I'm only noting this because it further justifies why I do this little bit on every show. I, I believe solo dining is 
just something we all do and shouldn't be perceived as rare. So I just want to share that. Now, I did sit down and the bartender Michael took great care of me. What did I get? Seared octopus with smoked eggplant caviar and beef tartare with black trumpet mushrooms, puffed farro, anchovy, and egg yolk. My take? I like the octopus and I love the tartare. It had a great texture and flavor, really delicious. The scene? It's a large bar and lounge area. It's a beautiful space with an open kitchen in the back. I'd say it's perfect for dinner with the parents. Interesting tidbits? The space was formerly Spanish brasserie Manzanilla. And Upland is named after the West Coast town that laid the groundwork for Justin's lifelong love of cooking. Personal fun fact, I ran into my lovely episode 32 guest, Rita Jamey, and her family having dinner. The cost, $37 pre-tax and tip. Would I go back? Definitely. There's much more to try. Website is uplandnyc.com. Okay, so Randy, it is time for the final question. Next week, I'm having on Scott Feldman. He is the owner of 212 Management and Marketing. I believe you probably know Scott, even though he's known for the late night parties, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. He is. He's a a great talent in the industry. He's done a lot of terrific things, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to have him on. He's kind of like the celebrity chef agent, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say. So uh, what, what question shall I ask him? Well, first of all, I'll ask him why I can never get into the 212 house at the Aspen Classic, regardless of who I know <laughs> and what I have. <laughs> he is the, that, uh, I've had, Scott and I have had a couple of laughs before because I, uh, I've had two or three years trying to get into that event as one of the events that I could get into, and uh, it's always been a, it's been a little bit of a hilarious calamity. But in any case, the real question for me, for, for Scott, would be, you know, he works with so many great super talents um, and, and really a wide variety. I'd love to know from him what's, What's next on the food talent um, landscape, and, and what are some of the people that he's working with, some of his clients looking for as new areas, new places to break ground? Or does he think it's going to be a continuation of what we've seen in the past? What projects uh, and, and how people that are developing new ideas and new concepts could feed into some of the things that his talent is looking for and, and, and really craving? Great. I will ask him. Because I want to know the answer to both, too. Because, I, I mean, I think we all have trouble getting into the 212 house sometimes. <laughs> it just is what it is. Okay, well, Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been talking with Randy Fisher. He's the president and founder of Cream, which stands for Culinary-Related Entertainment and Marketing. Their website is creamthecompany.com. You can find them on Twitter at cream underscore it. My Twitter is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. Now, if you miss a live broadcast, you can always find us archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're also on Stitcher and on iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack, and thanks to Randy, and thanks to all you out there listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll tune in again next week when I'm back for another live show. Till then, have a great week. Bye, Randy. Bye-bye, Sherry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.